against that. Lord, we pray now for your presence and your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to your word. We pray, Father, that we might receive it in a fresh way today, that you would speak to each and every one of us, and that, Lord, um, we would grow to glorify you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 1960s, Edward Lorenz, who was a meteorologist and an MIT professor, tried to explain why predicting the weather can be so difficult. There's nothing more annoying, right, than to turn on the TV and they're forecasting weather and it's not anything like it. And in the process, he was running some numbers in a computer program for a two-month weather pattern. And after he got the computer running, he went out and had a cup of coffee. When he came back, he was surprised by the results. He found that tiny alterations drastically transform the whole pattern. In fact, what he discovered changed the course of science in the 20th century. He determined that in nature, tiny changes can have large consequences. It is referred to as the butterfly effect when Lorenz suggested that the flap of a butterfly's wings in one place on the globe might cause a tornado in another. I'm not sure what butterfly was flapping his wings before Harvey, but I hope that butterfly doesn't flap again. The science, which he ended up uh, developing in terms of a theory was the chaos theory. And along with relativity and quantum mechanics, it revolutionized science in the 20th century. Well, I want to suggest today this same premise of tiny changes that can create large changes. In fact, what I want to suggest to all of us is that small changes spiritually will generate larger spiritual change. And I want us to look at Paul's missionary journey to Berea to help us look at this. To see how a small spiritual change, by carefully studying God's word, might also generate a greater spiritual change through the supernatural power of God. Greater than any of us can imagine. The big idea today is this, that the careful study of God's word will not only cultivate greater spiritual character, but also generate greater, wider spiritual impact. Let me repeat that, because that's a mouthful. Careful study of God's Word will not only cultivate greater spiritual character, 
but also generate wider spiritual impact. Consider how the small change of carefully studying God's Word has brought about larger changes in history. Take, for instance, the early believers. What we learn about them in the very first church, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? They were teaching the Word of God. They were revealing how Jesus was the Messiah and looking at the Scriptures. And so, as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Well, what resulted from this tiny commitment to studying God's Word there in Jerusalem would spread throughout the entire Roman Empire and have a large spiritual impact. Or consider the Reformation, Protestant Reformation. This year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, so you'll hear more about it. There is uh, the five solas, which were the reforming principles. One of those principles was sola scriptura, which essentially, why do I say that like an Italian? I don't know. Anyways, it essentially purports that God's word is the primary and absolute source for all doctrine and practice. Now, this commitment to solo scriptura not only caused the Protestant Reformation, of which one-third of all Christians in the world today are Protestants, but it also reformed the Catholic Church. 50 years later. And in that reform, they ended the evil practice of selling indulgences, which was a way of actually, you know, um, encouraging sin from people. But they also, they also adopted justification by faith and not by work. Careful study of God's Word has led to greater and wider spiritual transformation throughout history. And that's why I'm saying that I think the butterfly effect actually has a, it can actually um, relate to what we're talking about here in terms of spiritual matters. Now, if you haven't opened your Bible to Acts, chapter 17, 10 through 13, it'd be a good idea because the Bereans all had their Bibles with them. They were careful students of God's Word. Who were these Bereans and how are they described? Well, at the beginning of chapter 17, we are told about the pattern of how the early church went about evangelizing and spreading the gospel. This is what we read. And Paul went in, and it doesn't say where, but the reference is to the first verse, the synagogue. And Paul went in to the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is Christ. Now this was at 
Thessalonica. Okay? This is what Paul did. And he and Silas were so effective in sharing the gospel that there were Jews who rose up in anger against them. And they started riots. And they went to the magistrates. And they had some of the believers of the early church arrested. Things got so bad that in the middle of the night, they took Paul and Silas out of the town because the preaching of the gospel was having such an effect on people. And they took them 50 miles away. And they stopped in the town of Berea. What we learned that they did in this pattern of going into the synagogue was that they reasoned, they explained, and they proved Jesus to be the Messiah. So, when Paul and Silas came to Berea, they followed that same pattern. They went to the synagogue. That's what we read. And what it says is that the Jews there were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now when we think of the word noble, we think of somebody who is born of nobility or higher rank. But that is not the way Dr. Luke is using the word noble. Noble can also have a different meaning, and that is what Dr. Luke intended. In this case, he intended to communicate that the virtue of goodness in their character was evident. Now, when we look at Greek lexicons, it describes this word noble as a willingness to learn even to be open-minded and to evaluate fairly. And some of the other translations literally have substituted the words open-minded or fair-minded for noble. The Bereans were intellectually objective. That's the opposite of being closed-minded or holding on to preconceived ideas, opinions, or prejudices. We read further in verse 11, that they received the teaching with all eagerness. What this means is that the Bereans were intellectually curious, eager to learn the truth. And the truth that they were eager to learn was of particular importance because it was to consider if Jesus was the Messiah, the God-man who came to pay the debt for sin so that we might be forgiven and restored to a relationship with God through the grace of forgiveness by our faith in Him. Finally, we read in verse 11 that they were committed to examining the Scriptures daily to see if the Scriptures supported this teaching, this explaining which Paul was providing for them. The Bereans were committed to knowing God's truth. 
This is why they met daily with Paul. But while they met daily with Paul and considered what he was purporting and teaching, they nevertheless held fast to the Word of God. Well, why? Because they understood the Word of God to be inspired by God, authoritative for living, and timeless. Timeless. Notice what happens in verse 12. People's lives were changed. It says that many believed Jesus was the Messiah and they were saved. Many. The news had to be profound because the word was traveling out away from Berea. They were talking about this Paul who was speaking about the Messiah and teaching on him and it traveled out 50 miles to Thessalonica. And there when the Jews heard what was happening, those who had tried to stop the gospel message now came to Berea to stop the gospel message again. But the gospel cannot be stopped. It is God's word of hope to the world. And although Paul left and ended up in Athens after this, nevertheless, the gospel was sown and it was passed on to others and it spread throughout the Holy Roman Empire and it spread down through history. For 20 centuries, it has spread and it will continue to be a word of hope to people until that great and awesome and terrible day of the Lord comes. So, how can we apply this? This is good stuff. This is powerful stuff. This is real spiritual stuff that we can get our hands on, that we can get our arms around. That makes a huge difference in people's lives. How can we follow the example of the Bereans? Well, remember, they saw the Word of God as authoritative, inspired, and timelessly true. They understood that these principles within the Word of God were to guide us. And so they applied everything through the grid of God's Word. Still, they were not so foolish as to be closed-minded. They were open-minded, but objective. Again, using the Word of God as their grid. And they knew that if this was of God, then it would be consistent with God's Word and not against it. But also, they were not so foolish as to automatically accept any new teaching either, for they carefully examined it with the truth of God's word and understood it within its proper context. For the next six weeks, we all have an opportunity to study God's word 
carefully in the plunge. Imagine with me what change might occur as a result. Just imagine what happens as we all enter into this plunge together and we carefully study the Word of God. Imagine the change that it can bring about in our hearts and in our lives, but imagine the greater ripples of change it may have, the butterfly effect, far beyond us. Not simply us as individuals and not us as a church, but even beyond us in that, as we study carefully God's Word. The plunge is just a short-term opportunity to taste test right, to test drive the spiritual life, the shared spiritual life. We're not meant to live life alone. We're meant to be in community. And the Holy Spirit of God uses community in powerful ways. My problem with people say, oh, I believe in God, but I can worship God more in, in uh, nature. And, you know, I don't like the people of the church. I'm better off by myself. That is not what the Holy Spirit did when people came to faith in Jesus. When we come to faith in Jesus, it brings us into community with others who have faith in Jesus. That's not to say the church is perfect. Far from it. Sitting in front of me are a bunch of sinners. And standing in front of you may be the greatest of sinners. We're all sinners, but we're recovering. We're recovering with the help of God. We're recovering because we've been forgiven. We're recovering because we've held on by faith, knowing that Jesus has provided that forgiveness through the cross. This is how God has said that the world will be redeemed and people will be redeemed and they shall be in relationship with Him for all eternity. This is why we share the gospel. The plunge is that opportunity for us to do the shared life together, to grow spiritually. It's a place where we'll find support and challenge and encouragement and correction and love. And it's a time in our church like no other that unifies us as we study the Word together, all of us in that same Word, studying it together. Now, this year, <clears throat> we've been working on the third movement of our mission, sending out empowered disciples to transform the world. And we've been studying the first half of Acts as a primary text for our uh, study. And we've been lacing other texts together with us in the hope that as we look at these things, we will grow in our capacity, our understanding, and our ability to carry out our mission. That's why the book of Amos was chosen for the plunge. It will absolutely help us to grow in our mission. Amos was a minor prophet. And what we will find as we study that book together is it will help us to grow in our understanding of God 
in our understanding of ourselves and in our mission. What I'd like you to do for the next few minutes is to look up here on the screen. I want you to see a video that describes the book of Amos. It is done by the Bible Project, and they have graciously allowed us to use it. And if you want to see this or other descriptions of books within the Bible, then just go to the thebibleproject.com. Please look up here. You'll see what we're going to be studying for the next six weeks. The Book of the Prophet Amos. Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived right near the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. Now, the north had seized its independence about 150 years earlier. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12. And it was currently being ruled by Jeroboam II, a successful military leader. <coughs> he won lots of battles and new territory for Israel, and he generated lots of wealth. But in the eyes of the prophets, he was one of the worst kings ever. His wealth had led to apathy, and he allowed idol worship for the gods of Canaan, which in turn led to injustice and the neglect of the poor. And it got to the point where Amos could couldn't take it anymore. He sensed God calling him to go trek up north to Bethel, an important city that had a large temple, and start announcing God's word to the people. And this book is a collection of his sermons and poems and visions uttered over the years. They were compiled later to give God's people a sense of his divine message to the northern kingdom. And it's a message we still need to hear today. The book has a fairly clear design. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of messages to the nations and Israel. Then chapters 3 to 6 are a collection of poems that express Amos' message to the people of Israel and its leaders. Chapters 7 through 9 contain a series of visions that Amos experienced that depict God's coming judgment on Israel. Let's just dive in. So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line said that Amos was going to speak against Israel. But watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the crosshairs. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. He accuses Israel's wealthy of ignoring the poor and allowing grave injustice in their land, specifically by allowing the poor to be sold into debt slavery, and then going on to deny any of these people legal representation. And this, Amos asks, is this the family that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt? The family that God rescued from oppression and slavery? The party's over, Amos says. God is done putting up with you. And so the opening of the next section explains why. God says, I chose you, Israel, from among all the families of the earth. This is an allusion to Genesis 12, how God had called the family of Abraham to become God's blessing to all of the nations. And so then God says, so this is why I will punish you for all of your sin. Israel had a great calling, which came with great responsibility. And so their sin and rebellion brings great consequences. Now, this section brings together a lot of Amos's poems, and you'll see a few key themes repeated over and over. 
So first, he's constantly exposing the religious hypocrisy of Israel's wealthy and their leaders. And he describes how they faithfully attend the religious gatherings, giving offerings and sacrifices, all the while neglecting the poor and ignoring injustice. And Amos says it's all a sham, that God actually hates their worship because it's totally disconnected from how they treat people. God says a real relationship with him will transform a person's relationships. And so Amos' call to true worship is to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now, these two words, they're super important for Amos and actually all of the prophets. So righteousness, or in Hebrew, tzedakah, refers to a standard of right, equitable relationships between people, no matter their social differences. And justice, or in Hebrew, mishpat, refers to concrete actions that you take to correct injustice and create righteousness. And so both of these are to permeate the life of God's covenant people like a rushing stream fills a dry riverbed. The next theme is Amos's repeated accusations of Israel's idolatry. So remember, when the northern kingdom broke away from southern Judah, their king built two new temples to rival Solomon's in Jerusalem, and he placed a golden calf in each. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12. Since then, Israel had only accumulated more idols, worshiping the gods of sex and weather and war. And in the prophet's view, the worship of these gods always led to injustice because these gods don't require the same degree of justice and righteousness as the God of Israel, not to mention that these gods were immoral themselves, not the God of Israel. He's different. So he can say in one place, seek me that you may live. And then right after that, say to Israel, seek good, not evil that you may live. So true worship of the creator God of Israel, it's synonymous with doing good, with generosity and with justice. And so the final theme in these chapters is that because Israel and its king have rejected Amos and the other prophets, God will send the day of the Lord. This is a great and terrible act of justice on Israel. And specifically, Amos predicts that a powerful nation will come and conquer and decimate their cities and take the people away into exile. And we know his prediction came true. Some 40 years later, the Assyrian Empire swooped in and did exactly as Amos had said. The book closes with a series of visions that Amos experienced and their symbolic depictions of the coming day of the Lord. So he sees Israel devastated by a locust swarm and then by a scorching fire and then they're being swallowed up like overripe fruit. And in the final vision, Amos sees God violently striking the pillars of Israel's great idol temple at Bethel and the whole building comes crumbling down. It's an image of God's justice on the leaders and the gods of Israel. Their end has finally come. But then, all of a sudden, in the final paragraph, we see a glimmer of hope. It picks up this image of Israel as a destroyed building, and God says that out of the ruins, he will one day restore the house of David. In other words, he's going to bring the future messianic king from David's line, and he will rebuild the family of God's people, which, surprisingly, we're told, is going to include people from all of the nations. All of the devastation caused by Israel's sin and God's judgment will that day be reversed. Now, this final paragraph 
paragraph is super important. It's the only sign of hope on the other side of judgment. And it helps us see how this book is exploring the relationship between God's justice and his mercy. If God is good, he has to confront and judge evil among Israel and the nations. But his long-term purposes are to restore his world and build a new covenant family. And so through Amos's words, we still today hear his call to learn from Israel's hypocrisy and disaster and to embrace a true worship of this God, which should always lead to justice and righteousness and loving our neighbor. And that's what the book of Amos is all about. So why participate in the plunge? What are the benefits of studying Amos together? Well, let us consider how God honored the Bereans. He called them noble and memorialized them as virtuous in their careful study of the word. That they were people of great character and maturity. They were, if you will, poster children for what we read in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, that means proficient and capable, equipped for every good work. That means moral excellence. So, here's what one of the ways you can apply this word of God from today. Join in the careful examination of God's word, which is profitable, right, for us. In this intrapersonal effect, making us men and women of noble character. So I would encourage you to engage in the plunge because of that. Secondly, the studying of Amos together will help us to practice receptivity and critical thinking. The Bereans met daily with Paul to examine and to consider what he was saying along with what the scriptures were saying. Now, here's the reality of faith. Not everybody comes to faith in Jesus intellectually. There are those who come because their heart is deeply moved and they respond to their hearts. That doesn't mean that they're not intellectual people, or that they don't have fine minds. But they seem to be people who respond more out of their heart than out of their head. The reality is, though, Jesus is to be Lord of what? Our minds and our hearts. And so, as a result, we need to engage both in our faith. The Apostle Peter wrote this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect. <clears throat> Developing critical thinking and the understanding of our faith in Jesus so that we are able to explain it and defend it to others is a learned skill. It's true that the Holy Spirit will help you and will give you words. 
Consider Peter in the Sanhedrin. There he is in a legal form, doesn't know the law, hasn't studied the law, but the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he powerfully refutes what he's been accused of. But while the Holy Spirit has done that, we also need to consider that he spent a lot of time with Jesus. He watched how Jesus handled situations. He watched how Jesus was able to speak the truth. He learned some things in that, and that's the truth about how we learn to defend our faith, how we learn to explain it to others. We learn from one another, right? So critical thinking and the ability to communicate your faith will grow if you participate in the plunge. And I want you to know that each of these studies has been put together by your pastors. And the primary focus is on application. But there is still uh, quite a bit to learn as we um, study Amos together. Here's another way for you to apply today's word. Bring your Bibles or your electronic devices that have your Bible on it to church every week. You know, there was a time when you just saw everybody carrying their Bible into church. Well, it's true now that we have electronic devices, but I don't always see people look down at their Scripture when it's being taught here. You know, the Bereans were checking out what Paul was saying. And I can guarantee you Paul was a far better theologian and teacher than this pastor is. And you want to be able to look at that Word of God and examine it and look at what's being said about it and examine what's being taught. That's how we should be engaged here in the worship of God so that we might grow. So take the worship of God and His Word seriously. When you come over these next six weeks, bring your Bible, bring your electronic device, pull it out, study it, as we're doing this and examine what's being said. Another thing that I could ask uh, is to prepare each week for Sunday's message in Amos. There are going to be just a few thoughts in a few directions so that you can be better prepared to consider what's being taught. Now, for those of you who are willing to get tweets or go on Twitter or have it sent to your messages, We'll send that out to you midweek. For those of you who aren't so sure about that, we'll have it posted on our Facebook page. Or we'll have it on our website. And for those of you who maybe aren't quite that savvy, if you look at the back of today's sermon notes, you should see next week's kind of midweek, or this week's midweek encouragement for preparing for the first message in Amos. We'll do that each week. So I want to encourage you to engage in that way. Here's another and the last of these encouragements. And that is that by participating with others in this plunge, I promise you that you will grow in your recognition and your appreciation of the Holy Spirit and how he works in us. It's when we're together in these studies 
the Holy Spirit becomes powerfully present and we learn how to listen to Him. And as we learn how to listen to Him there, we're going to learn how to listen to Him in our everyday life. Because the more time we spend with the Holy Spirit, the more familiar we are with Him. It's kind of like if you get a call from Pastor Craig, you know it's Pastor Craig, don't you? Because you've heard my voice many times and there aren't too many people you know who sound like a truck driver. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. You hang out with the Holy Spirit long enough, you know His voice. What does Jesus say? My sheep will know my voice. So the more we do that, the more we're going to be able to respond to God and through His Spirit. So I would encourage you there. Let me just say this. If you're not in a life group, I invite you to fill out the form. It's in the the bulletin. We've got forms out by the well. I invite you to join the plunge just for this six weeks. Sign up and take it with us as we study Amos together. We'll do our best to get everybody in a life group. And then we can do this shared life together. It is certain that through the careful study and consideration of the Scriptures, you and I will grow in our spiritual character and in our maturity. We will grow intrapersonally within so that we will become more and more noble like the Bereans. I imagine and I'm hoping that you can imagine with me that there will be a butterfly effect that will produce a wider change of spiritual transformation interpersonally. I don't know what that will be, but that's what's exciting about it. Living this life with God is an adventure. And if we will live it based on His spiritual principles and the timeless Word of God, then we will have an adventure throughout our life that is phenomenal as we live with Him. And He takes us to places we've never imagined. And we see things we couldn't fathom. And we watched His awesome and miraculous hand do incredible things for His glory. And it comes through our trust in Him. I invite you to Encourage you to join with Pastor Tim, Dr. Lau, and myself in seeing what God will do intrapersonally and interpersonally in the study of the plunge. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and the timelessness of it and the authority of it and that you have inspired men to put that down so that we would hear you in the timeless truths. Lord, as we commit to the study of Amos together in this plunge, I pray that you will do a supernatural work. That, Lord, you will do something spiritually in each of us that will forever change us to your glory. And I pray, Father, for fresh wind and fresh fire 
that you might do something supernaturally through our church, that our study of Amos would have that butterfly effect and wider spiritual impact for your glory. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Just want to cover a couple of questions. Uh, do you think the Bereans were noble people by nature? Or are we to understand this nobility or ability to understand the scriptures as having been revealed to them by God only upon Paul's visit to them? I think for sure it was revealed to them through the Spirit of God. But nowhere else in the scriptures do we read about such a people who were committed to studying the scriptures. So I think that there may be a good foundation for believing that they were careful students of Scripture. And because that is certainly clear in this text. Um, second one. As we critically think about God's Word, will we find that we have perhaps misunderstood individually certain aspects of the Bible? How can we learn to recognize and internalize the Word as it was meant to be rather than the way we want it to be? Um, that, those are great questions and difficult questions, and I think we absolutely misinterpret things individually. Um, but I think that as we walk with God's Spirit, those things become clear to us, and the truth becomes clear to us, and we're able to, to understand it better, um, and we're able to better internalize it. Oftentimes, we have our own stuff, wounds from our life uh, that cause us to read certain things in certain ways. So for instance, you know, when I was starting out in Christianity, I read about the judgment of God and all I could see was my father, the cop. And so hard to get close to my father, God, for me, not hard to get close to Jesus just hard to get close to my Father God. But when I understood Jesus to be the visible expression of the Father, wow, had a whole change in me. So I think those kinds of things happen, but I think God's able to help us deal with that. And then lastly, for many theologians, let alone people, sola scriptura is the foundation of their theological understanding. If that is the case, how come devoted theologians can't agree on various biblical texts, such as baptism of infants or adults, speaking in tongues, so on and so forth, covering uh, the head of women? You know, interesting question. And I think God leaves some room in this so that we have to work some of these things out with faith. I don't think we should divide over the minor things in Scripture ever. We should come to agreement on the major things, grant charity and love and all these other things, right? We can do that. One day, we're going to know exactly what God wants, but I think sometimes God has left some things um, a little unclear for us so that we will live by faith and walk with him by faith. There are probably better theological uh, answers, but 
Um, those are my practical answers to how I understand that. Now, if you would rise for the benediction as we go out into the world, remember that we are called to join with God where He is working. And He's working in the lives of people that they don't even know it. But our mission is to connect with God and connect with those people out there. So as we leave, from the church gathered to the church sent, go with the blessing of God, go knowing that the Spirit of God will lead you in this. And now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and grant you His peace, both now and after life eternal. Amen.